0: Genesis 39 and 40. We'll get back to Joseph. We're going to do a brief review of what we talked about week before last, when we began our study of Joseph. And the review is going to be based on some untruths of our culture that the Bible refutes. And the one we looked at two weeks ago was the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you will make you weaker. We know that's not true. And the scripture tells us in James, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete. That literally means mature, lacking in nothing. So we know that actually these difficulties make us stronger. When we turn to the Lord, it's like exercising, it's like working muscles, we get stronger in our walk and relationship with Christ, and our faith is strengthened. So we we saw that in the life of Joseph, that God was taking a very pampered, protected 17-year-old boy, and he's going to allow him to go through some difficulties that are going to strengthen and define his character to prepare him for a position of great power and prestige that he was not prepared for. Okay, the untruth we're going to look at this week is the untruth of emotional reasoning. What does our culture say? Always trust your feelings. Follow your heart. You be you, right? Live for your own truth. What does the scripture say? Second Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations, thoughts, and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. So we need to think about what we're thinking about because our thoughts contribute to our emotions. So we have to think about it and pull down lofty ideas, wrong ideas, wrong ways of thinking, the lies from our culture. We have to stop them and replace them with what we know is truth. And our feelings sometimes can feel like they're on the front row of our lives. (laughs) They're screaming at us, right? And the voice of the Lord is that still small voice that we have to turn to him, his word and his spirit to hear. So we are not going to make decisions Based on feelings. We make decisions based on the truth of God's word. And as we do that, our feelings will eventually line up. Now, God has given us emotions, but they are not to rule our lives. We need to address them, process through them, and then make decisions based on the truth of God's word. So, as we move into Genesis 39, we're going to see what Dana mentioned, and I call it the Joseph effect. That God's blessing was upon Joseph and everywhere he went, not only was Joseph blessed, but those around him were blessed as well. Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 39. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, brought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph. We're going to see it five times in verse 39 and two times in verse 40. So he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him, and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed The Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus, the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now, do you realize? the power that Joseph now has in the house of Potiphar, who was an important man, the captain of the bodyguard for Pharaoh. And as Joseph was in his home, I'm sure he came in as one of the lowliest of the low, a newly purchased slave. And here he is serving, and yet it's evident, even to this pagan man, that God's hand is on him. That God is blessing him. And he can't explain it, but everything that his hand touches is blessed. He prospers. And so he gives him more responsibility and more responsibility and more responsibility until what? He does not worry about anything. He just thinks about the food he's going to eat. That's literally how much responsibility he has given to Joseph who has come to be a slave within his home. So that's how much he trusts him. So we see here the Joseph effect, but then we're going to see he's achieved favor and blessing in this difficult circumstance, and yet there's, the enemy's going to come after him, isn't he? Let's pick back up and look at verse 7. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. He was a good-looking young man. And it came about after these event that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, "'Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God?' As she spoke to Joseph day after day, isn't that how temptation works?' over and over, trying to wear him down, he did not listen to her, to lie beside her or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled. There's something about him in garments, right? (laughs) Robes. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See? He has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, the Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And as I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside." Now when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him saying, this is what your slave did to me, his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him and put him into jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. So what do we know about temptation? I want us to recognize the fact that if Joseph had fallen into self-pity, he would have been more prone to indulge his flesh and listen to the voice of Potiphar's wife who kept tempting him and tempting him. How would the enemy have been hitting him with temptation? You're, you're here because you were betrayed. You've been sold as a slave. You're not supposed to be a slave. Can you believe what's happened to you? Look at you, a slave in another man's home. This isn't right. You have rights. Hey, she's interested. She could be a good ally. Maybe I should give in. Maybe I should indulge my flesh. Do you see how self-pity works? When we start feeling sorry for ourselves, we open ourselves up to justify sin. Joseph had to have made a decision at the moment he was sold as a slave that he would not betray his God, his covenant-keeping God. And not only that, we have to know somewhere in the back of his mind God was reminding him of the stories he had heard of his forefathers. Of how God had spoken to Abraham. The promises he had made to Abraham. How God had told him that his people would be in Egypt for 400 years. But God would raise up a deliverer and he would bring them back and he would give them the promised land. God made promises to Abraham, to Isaac, to his own father Jacob. And he would have heard these stories. He would have known these promises. And even though his circumstances were bleak, even though it all looked hopeless, how could God possibly fulfill the two dreams he had given him that he had shared with his family? Look where he was. He still believed. He still trusted the God of the covenant, the God of his fathers, because if he had not, he would have fallen. To that temptation. He would have given in if he had been feeling sorry for himself. So as we look at him, how do we then withstand temptation? What does 1 Corinthians 10:13 say? No temptation has overtaken you but such as is common to man. And God is faithful. Who is faithful? We aren't. God is faithful. And nothing has happened to us, temptation included, that hasn't happened to everybody else. We sometimes think we're the only one that's having to withstand this incredible temptation and no one else could bear it either. No, all temptation is common. All of us deal with the same types of temptation, but God is faithful and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able, but with the temptation will provide the way. There are not always multiple ways, but he will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. So how did Jesus withstand temptation? It is written. He responded with the sword of the Spirit, the truth of the Word of God. That means we must know the Word and immerse ourselves in the Word to be able to wield the sword of the Spirit against the enemy. We can't wield a sword that we've not practiced with, that we've not memorized the Word of God so that we detect the lie of the enemy and we say, that's not true. This is what God says. It is written exactly the way Jesus did. And then with this specific temptation, sexual temptation, how are we instructed in Scripture to respond to it? Flee! (laughs) Scream it out. Run! That is not one that we stand firm against. That is one that we run from. In fact, 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. What does 1 Corinthians 6 tell us about it? Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? What happened the moment you were saved? The Spirit of God came to dwell within you, and your body is now a living, breathing temple of God. Just as the temple had three parts, just as our God is Trinitarian, He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are created in His image, and we are a trichotomy, We are spirit, soul, and body. And prior to coming to Christ, we are dead spiritually. Scripture is very clear about that. But the moment you're saved, you're regenerated. Your spirit man's brought back to life, and the Holy Spirit comes to dwell within us, in our inner being, in our spirit man, and we are now living, breathing temples of God. Do you remember? How the priest, the high priest had to prepare to go into the holy of holies, the holiest place of the tabernacle and then the temple on the day of atonement to put the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. He had to fast. He had to cleanse himself. He had to go in in white garments. He had to do it exactly the way God said or the holiness of God would destroy him. That same Holy Spirit now dwells within our physical body. And the only reason we are not consumed by his holiness is because of the blood of Jesus Christ. He has protected us. So then he says, we've been joined to Christ. We've become a part of the body of Christ the moment you're saved. He says, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body. But the immoral man sins against his own body, sins against the temple of the living God. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So what's it talking about here? Any kind of sexual immorality, any kind of sin, that means flirting, fantasizing, pornography, illicit relationships, we are to flee. And God has given us the way of escape. Now I recognize because we have a very sexualized culture that it's in our face all the time. Our children are bombarded with it. We are bombarded with it. And what happens when you're bombarded with sexual immorality over and over and over is we become desensitized to it. We begin to think that it's not quite that bad. And it's okay if they move in together before they're married. I mean, they're going to get married anyway. We start listening to the rationalizations of the world around us and our culture instead of going to the Word of God that says, no, it screams at us, flee sexual immorality. Why? Why is that sin different? It's different because it's a sin against the body, which is now, if you're a believer, a temple of the Holy Spirit. You are actually desecrating the temple of God. Now, when you think about it like that, it's like, whoa, I don't want to do that. And I recognize also in our Me Too culture that there has been a lot of abuse of women that has gone on because of men in powerful positions and men who have seduced women. But we have to also be honest and know that there are women who are seductresses as well. It's not always the man's fault. Now, our culture right now wants to make it appear that way and that every woman is a victim, but we know differently, and we also know the Bible tells us a different story. In fact, if you've got your Bible, turn to Proverbs chapter 5, And in fact, some of you know that I wrote a book on the two women of Proverbs, and it covers Proverbs 1 through 9, where wisdom and folly are personified, and in those passages of Scripture, we see the blessings associated with wisdom and the curses associated with folly. And in the book of Proverbs, folly is a seductress. And let's look at chapter 5. I'm going to give you verse 3, and I don't think I had this on the handout, but I I went back as I was reading through this and went back to verse 3. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not know it. The seductress. She flatters, she flirts, she bats her eyelid, it talks about in Proverbs, to seduce a man. Look at verse 8 Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength, and your hard earned goods will go down to the house of an alien. And you groan at your final end when your flesh and your body are consumed. And you say, How I have hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof. Now drop down to verse 20. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man or a woman are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will capture the wicked, and he will be held with the cords of his sin. And ladies, that word for cords right there, you might want to underline it, circle it, and write out in the margin, noose. It literally means noose. We hang ourselves with our sin. He will die for lack of instruction and in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. I love this quote from James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary on Genesis. He said, our calling is not to excuse our disobedience or failure. It is to conquer Temptation as Joseph did. We need to have our reasons in mind before temptation comes so that if we find ourselves unable to remember our reasons later, we will at least remember that we have reasons for obeying God and live in response to them rather than surrender to our passions. Now, if you have children or grandchildren, it's very important for us to train them and to teach them what God's word says and to make decisions beforehand what they're going to do in specific situations. For instance, when somebody walks up with a phone and maybe your child doesn't have a phone or doesn't have access to the internet on their phone and wants to show them pornography, they need to know what they need to do, that they need to flee. They need to let you know or let an adult know. They don't need to give in to that. You need to talk through these situations with them so that they already have in their head what they're going to do before it ever happens. Now, when I was preparing to date and my parents were going to let me go on my first date, my father was the one who sat me down and gave me the talk. Mortified is all I can say. (laughs) To hear your father talk to you about that. But can I tell you how grateful I am that he told me how a lot of boys think? And the things that they will do to satisfy their own flesh and helped me walk through what I would do and how I would call him if I was ever in a situation where I needed help came in handy. Because I knew beforehand, because I love the Lord, what I would and would not do and where I would and would not go. And I knew that I could call my parents at any time to come and get me if I needed to. And one time I actually did. I was in a car with some teenagers. And one of them was a really good friend of mine. And some of the others I just kind of knew from school and actually from church. Um, And one of them opened the glove box and pulled out marijuana. Can I just tell y'all? I absolutely freaked out. I was like, "Pull the car over, pull the car over!" It's like my dad would kill me if I got arrested and you had drugs in the car. And I, we went somewhere. I can't remember even now where I went. And my girlfriend and I called my dad, and he came and picked us up. You need to know these things ahead of time. Joseph had decided before he ever was propositioned by Potiphar's wife that he would not fail his covenant-keeping God. That he knew somehow God was going to work this together for his good. And because he knows his God is sovereign and he's ultimately working toward his desired end, he can trust him in the meantime, regardless of how dark his circumstances may seem. That's a lesson we need to learn as well. God allows us to go through trials and difficulties, to strengthen us, to prepare us, to teach us. Because it is when we are in those valleys, we're most aware of his presence, but also most open to his word. It is then that we are longing to hear from him. And so I would encourage you to make those decisions before. In fact, Ken Geyer wrote a great book about this. It's called The North Face of God. And in it, he talks about Masada, which is in Israel. And it was a winter palace across from the Dead Sea up on the top of a mountain that Herod built during time of peace. But the beauty of that is, and the thing that Ken Geyer pointed out was, he was building it during a time of peace so that when war broke out, he had a safe place. You build your Masada in your heart by investing in the word of God. By trusting God on a daily basis so that when the big test comes, you know you're God and you're able to trust him. And he is your stronghold. The name of the Lord is a strong tower and those who run into it are safe. He is our stronghold. So bless his heart. He goes from being being a slave to a prisoner. It looks like things are getting worse, right? Not better for Joseph, even though the hand of God is upon him. So let's pick back up. He gets thrown into the prison where the king's prisoners are kept. But what does 21 say? But the Lord was with Joseph. And extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail. So that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. So what are we seeing over and over again? God is with Joseph. God is with Joseph because Joseph is trusting God. God is blessing what Joseph is doing because Joseph is walking in a manner that pleases the Lord. He is seeking to please him even as a prisoner. And did you notice the language? The man over in the prisoners does just what Potiphar did. He puts him in charge of everything because he's so trustworthy. He had been given favor even in prison. Have you ever heard people say, it's darkest just before the dawn? (laughs) I think that's what's going on in Joseph's life. It gets darker and darker until we know he's going to be brought out into the light in nothing short of an incredible miracle. But his adverse life experiences did not make him weaker. They prepared him for leadership beyond his wildest imagination. And you know what? We have no idea what God is preparing us for. His ways are not our ways. Now, if we move into chapter 40, we're introduced to the cupbearer and the baker. And in the story of God Bible commentary, it says, the chief baker and the chief cupbearer were thrown into prison for an unspecified offense against Pharaoh. The prison here is called, now listen to this, the house of the captain of the guard. The same title that was used for Potiphar. He was the captain of the guard, the bodyguard of Pharaoh. Potiphar apparently was in control. And the fact that he did not have Joseph killed may be yet another another line of evidence that Potiphar was not totally convinced of his wife's charges. In any case, Joseph soon found himself in charge of these two prisoners. And what do we see happening here? These two men offended the king. And you know, you can be thrown into prison or killed for really minor offenses (laughs) when there is a king in charge. So let's pick up in verse 1. It came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker, for the king of Egypt offended their lord. Then after these things, the cupbearer and the baker, for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. Now the king's men just happened to be thrown into the same prison where Joseph is. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them. And they were in confinement for some time. We don't know how long. But then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt were confined. They both had a dream on the same night. Each man with his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. And when Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials, who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces sad today? Then they said to him, we've had a dream, and there's no one to interpret it. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So what's happened here? Joseph is in charge. And Joseph comes in, and he notices after some time that this particular morning, the baker and the cupbearer seem downcast. They're heavy. Something's going on. So what do we know about Joseph's character? He actually cared. Like he noticed that they were downcast. And then he asked them some questions, and he listened. Now, why did they say, there's nobody here to interpret? That's what the magicians did in the king's court. There were people who studied dreams and gave interpretations. There were books that gave ideas about interpretations of dreams. And they're saying, we have nobody to interpret it. And what does Joseph say? Real interpretation (laughs) belongs to God. God is the only one who can actually interpret a dream. So he noticed them, he listened, and then God gives him wisdom. So what do we know? They both had a dream, the baker and the cupbearer. The cupbearer dreamed, and their dreams, he says, oh, they both appear to mean three days. Both of you, your heads are going to be lifted up. One back to prominence, one actually literally taken off, evidently. He was going to be killed. The cupbearer was going to be restored to his position of honor and service to the king, and the baker was going to be killed. And we know that it happened exactly the way Joseph interpreted the dreams. Now, when the cupbearer was going to be restored, what does he say to him? Don't forget me. I am wrongfully imprisoned. I was wrongfully sold as a slave. I'm wrongfully imprisoned. Tell the king about my plight. When you're put back in your position, tell the king about me. And yet, what do we know happened? Verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. Can you even imagine to be that close to somebody who actually had access to the king? The cupbearer was not only just a servant of the king, he was a trusted ally, someone who would give the king advice, much like Nehemiah did in the time of the captivity and return in the Old Testament. He was a cupbearer for the king, and the king had a relationship with him, conversations with him, granted him the governorship to go back to the rebuilding of Israel and make sure that wall was rebuilt. So it was a prominent position. And Joseph knew when you're back in that position, you have the ear of the king. Tell him about my plight. But he was forgotten. Now he could have gotten angry then, right? I mean, he had a right to be angry with his brothers for selling him, with Potiphar's wife for falsely accusing him, as well as the cupbearer for forgetting him. But Joseph's continued trust in the Lord cured him of trusting in or seeking to please man. Now listen to that again. Joseph's continued trust in the Lord cured him of trusting in or seeking to please man. He lived to please the Lord. Yesterday, As I have a prayer notebook that I use during my personal prayer time, and I was praying through the girls on my life group list. I teach 10th grade girls, and as I was praying through their list, behind their list of names, I had a little sheet of paper. And it's one that I review, I don't know, several times a year, not that often. But it's Henrietta Mears' own Ten Commandments as a Sunday school teacher. And I was reviewing these, and I reviewed to say, Lord, am I doing this for the girls to which I teach? Am I helping to fulfill what you've called me to do by living authentically before them? Am I praying for them? Am I serving them? Am I calling them up to service? But number 10 was the one that really got to me as I was looking at it. And some of you are thinking, who's Henrietta Mears? (laughs) Henrietta Mears was an educator in Minneapolis, Minnesota who went on to be the director of education for the First Presbyterian Church in Hollywood, California. In fact, you kind of have on your... uh, uh, in your handout, the dates, like when she was born, some of the incredible things that she accomplished. She was at that particular church for 35 years. And one of the most incredible things is two and a half years after her arrival at the Hollywood church, Sunday school enrollment increased from 450, now listen to this, to 4,200 and eventually topped out at around 6,500. Why? because of a director of education yes because she began to teach through the bible chronologically because she was so convinced that people knew dis- disjointed stories of the bible but they didn't know the story of the Bible. They didn't know God's story. They were not able to tell it. They were not able to put the pieces together. And so she began teaching through the Bible chronologically. And people were so hungry for it and so responsive to it that they were getting requests from outside the church. People coming in to hear her teach. People wanting to get a copy of the curriculum. So she founded Gospel Light Publishing. Literally founded a publishing house to be able to publish the curriculum that she was writing that there was such incredible hunger for then she founded the Forest Home Christian Conference Center which is where Billy Graham made his just his the defining moment in his life when he said god i'm going to believe your word regardless and i'm going to trust you she was also instrumental in that revival in los angeles that really opened the door and made billy graham a household name she also founded gospel literature international Over 400 young people were called into full-time Christian ministry while she was at that church. Listen to this. Bill and Vonette Bright lived with her for 10 years in the house that she purchased right across the street from UCLA. She taught a Bible study in the mornings that was so popular, the kids filled the downstairs of the home, and they would literally open the windows, and kids would fill the lawn in front of the house to be able to hear her teach. That's how powerful her teaching was. Bill and Vonette, brought, Campus Crusade was birthed in her home. The founder of Varsity came out from under her ministry, and Billy Graham, as well as countless others, were influenced by this dynamic Bible teacher. And I brought this book, What the Bible's All About. This is an overview of every book of the Bible that Henrietta Mears put together, and it's written for us. It's written for lay people, not for the academics. It's written for us to be able to understand. So if you're reading through the Bible, this is a great book to have beside your Bible as you're reading. And if there's something you're questioning, how does this fit into the overall storyline of the Bible? How does this fit into the history of Scripture? This gives you that overview. It puts it into place for you. It is incredibly helpful. Um, so I highly recommend that to you. But this is number 10 in her 10 commandments. And this is the thing that just jumped out at me yesterday. Listen to this. I will spend and be spent in the battle. I will not seek rest and ease. I will not think that freshness of face holds beauty in comparison with the glory of heaven. I will seek fellowship with the man of sorrows acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53, as he walks through this stricken world, and in her Ten Commandments, this last sentence was bolded and underlined, I will not fail him. Oh, that we would do the same, that we would choose to acquaint ourselves with the man of sorrows, knowing that this life is not about comfort. It is not about ease. We're in a battle, a very real battle, and there are souls at stake, the souls of men and women, boys and girls. And we need to decide beforehand, I will not fail him. We can only do that through the power of the Holy Spirit and the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. So I just commend you to choose today who you're going to serve. And you know what? It's not always easy. It wasn't easy for Joseph, but he trusted the Lord. And we're going to see next week that God has not forgotten him. (laughs) It's all about God's timing. And at just the right time, Pharaoh's going to have a couple of dreams. And then the cupbearer remembers Joseph. And Joseph's going to see, (laughs) it's all been more than worth it. You have placed me here to preserve life. It's not about me. It's about your overarching purposes that you have in your grace and mercy called us to join you in. And it is only as we die to the flesh that God opens our eyes and allows us to see where he's working, what he's doing, and he invites us to join him. So would you join me today? And would you tell our covenant-keeping God that you choose to follow him, to acquaint yourself with the man of sorrows as we walk through this dark and broken world because we know the glory yet to come. (laughs) Eye has not seen and ear has not heard all that God has prepared for those who love him. And may we say today, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit and your grace, I will not fail you. May we fulfill his purpose and plan for each of our lives, for his glory. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father, Lord, even yesterday as I read back through these Ten Commandments and thought about the, the influence of Henrietta Mears, it's the power of one life completely sold out to Jesus. In other words, I thought back through the Old Testament, and I, I thought of Joseph, and then I thought of Daniel, and I thought of Deborah, and of Huldah, Lord, there have been people throughout history that have sold out to you and they have not failed you and you have used them mightily for your kingdom, for the advancement of your truth and you have entrusted them with great spiritual insight. For Father, those are the true riches. Lord, I pray that each one of us would right now decide that we will follow you. We will follow you alone. We will immerse ourselves in your word. We will be women of the word of God. And together, locking arms, we will go forward for the advancement of your kingdom. And oh, Lord God, we will not fail you. Use us, Father, as light in the darkness, salt. May we be instruments in your hand, vessels of honor, Lord, bless our women's ministry. And Lord, the truths that we're learning help us to be faithful to teach to others. Father, we thank you. We do not have words to thank you for your goodness, for your faithfulness, for your everlasting love. It's in the precious name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen.